I saw it on Linden Street. Hello, and welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun, cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection. A little background thrown in on the actors, the director, and if I'm doing my job right, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Now, fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So, if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend and give us a favorable review. We are wrapping up our months-long theme of Ozploitation. That's our selection of some great, underrated, and overlooked classics from the great nation of Australia. This week, we are screening the Aussie thriller, 1981's Road Games. Join us. There's a killer on the road His brain is squirming like a toad Take a long holiday Let your children play If you give this man a ride, sweet This is a film that I was lucky enough to find when I was in college. I rented it, I watched it, and I raved about it to any and all who would listen to me. And I have to say, that's only a handful of people to begin with, so you could understand it really didn't go much further than that. Now, as a storytelling device, road films are popular and well-known. Every culture has their own stories of travel and adventures, and as people have been meeting and sharing information and coming into conflict with each other on the highways and byways of civilization for the last 10,000 years or so, it's sort of this universal thing we all can relate to. Now that said, cinematically, the concept of a lonely hitchhiker either as being victim or being a menacing force is equally nothing new. Films involving killers on the road have been with us for decades. Some of them have been truly big pictures, and some neat things have resulted from it. Uh, Hitchhike, Dust Devil, The Hitcher, Night of the Hunter, all of those stick out in my mind. But hell, one could even make the argument that the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre follows the same motif, at least in the sense that you have a menacing figure who's hitchhiking and leads a bunch of unsuspecting victims astray, directing them to go someplace even more unpleasant and therefore ultimately more deadly. Likewise, the concept of films about truckers on the road, either battling a killer or themselves doing the killing, it's a subgenre that has some equally universal appeal. We all have countries that have trucks in them, we all have to use trucks to ship things, and we all encounter them in our travels. Films like Duel, Breakdown, Joyride all feature some menacing road characters riding inside the cabs of big rigs. 
in the hands of lesser writing and directing teams, this could be just another one of those type of movies. But when you have the collaboration between the brilliant writing of Everett DeRoche and the amazing tension techniques of director Richard Franklin, you get something like this week's picture, something that transcends its humble origins and becomes a thriller of rarefied air. You have a truck driver making his way across one of the most desolate stretches of highway in the known civilized world, who finds himself playing cat and mouse with a killer who's traveling in the same direction as he is, murdering hitchhikers along the way and purposely trying to frame the man who is catching on to him. First, a little bit of background on director Richard Franklin. He was born in Brighton, Melbourne in 1948, and Franklin, at least in his youth, thought he was going to be a musician. He attended Halebury College and decided that he wanted to study film there. So, post-college work, he went on to USC Film School in Los Angeles, and that put him in the early 70s as being in classes with contemporary filmmakers such as John Carpenter, George Lucas, Robert Zemeckis, and John Milanus. Franklin himself was a huge fan of Alfred Hitchcock, and when he wanted to host a student screening of the film Rope, a personal favorite of mine, he had to call Hitchcock personally for permission to screen it at the USC. Now, he got the famed director actually on the phone, and he'd made the call in front of a bunch of faculty members, and to their shock, Franklin invited the director to come on down and give a guest lecture at the screening that they were going to hold for the student body. And to everyone's surprise, Hitchcock took him up on it. Now, Franklin would go on to host a number of these sorts of screenings for the student body. Um, one of his achievements was he also got director John Ford to come and give a lecture to the film students during his time there. It was a crazy, crazy feat. By the mid-70s, he had graduated, and Franklin returned to his home of Australia and started directing both television shows and managed to contribute several films, um, early sex comedies, which marked the beginning of the Australian New Wave movement. Um, some of his films he added to that list were The True Story of Eskimo Nell, and in 1976 he did the softcore comedy Phantasm. He then met and partnered up with screenwriter Everett DeRoche when they worked together on 1978's Patrick, and it was that partnership that ended them leading us to this week's feature. Franklin would work on a number of films, both in Australia and the U.S. For example, he directed 1983's Psycho 2. He directed the Henry Thomas Dabney Coleman 1984 spy adventure, Cloak and Dagger. That's definitely going to be a future episode for us here. 1986's Link. And 1991's sequel, FX, FX2, with Brian Brown and the now late, great Brian Dennehy. In the mid-90s, he ended up returning back to Australia where he made smaller films and he ended up teaching courses at the Swinburne School of Film and Television. Tragically, Franklin ended up dying fairly young in 2007 at the age of 58 from complications due to prostate cancer. And that's really a tragedy because he obviously was a director of great talent and could have still given the world so many fantastic things. 
He was a favorite director of director Quentin Tarantino, and in the film Not Quite Hollywood, they interviewed Franklin, and it ended up being released a year after his death, and they dedicated the documentary to him. Now, this is a film written by, as we said, Everett DeRoche, a gentleman we first mentioned back when we covered another film that he wrote, Razorback. That was all the way back in episode two. True fans of cult films are well acquainted with his work. He had a great run in the late 70s and early 80s where he was the preeminent exploitation writer of his day, which is somewhat amusing because DeRoche himself was born American. Born July 12, 1946, in Lincoln, Maine, DeRoche ended up moving to Australia in 1968 with his wife, where he took a job working for the Queensland Health Education Council. He was made to write up a bunch of pamphlets on such hot-button subjects as living with herpes, while he maintained a health column in the Brisbane Telegraph. He was not actually a fan of the work that he did, but it did afford him opportunities to continue to write. And right, he did. He began to write spec scripts for an Australian television show, particularly one of the police dramas called Division 4. And his writing caught on. He ended up being hired to come on as a scriptwriter for Crawford Productions in Melbourne. And he never looked back. DeRoche's day job became writing for television, but his side work in the mid-70s became penning screenplays for what would ultimately become exploitation classics, such as 1978's psychic thriller and horror movie, Patrick, a Nature Strikes Back film, The Long Weekend from that same year, the 1980 thriller Harlequin, and the dual punch of Frog Dreaming, known on our side of the pond as The Quest with a young Henry Thomas and the film Link in 1986 and that's just your run-of-the-mill story about a murderous orangutan who falls in love and captures a young Elizabeth Shue in a house. You know, that old chestnut. So, with DeRoche writing this script, you know you're at least going to get some smart use of humor, slow and steady builds, and playing on the ability to ratchet up tension as the plot unfolds, which ultimately leads to very interesting developments. I wish the man had written even more, but sadly, DeRoche also died fairly young at the age of 67 from cancer. Now, when it came to penning this film, DeRoche was impressed with the expansiveness and desolate nature of the Nullarbor Plain and he thought the concept of using a killer on the road was great for a series at least and he was writing an episode of one of his police shows that he just called the episode itself truckies australian slang for truck drivers later he ended up getting the rights from crawford productions back to his own story and he was able to use this to develop a full-length script for a major motion picture Now, to understand some of the significance of the drama here, it would behoove one to understand at least the geography of where the bulk of this story is taking place. Our main character, Quid, is traveling west across the Nullarbor Plains, and that is some of the flattest, driest, and most desolate stretch of land 
on the continent of Australia. Nullarbor's name comes from the Latin for no trees. It is a desert climate that can reach up to 122 degrees in the summer. The stretch of highway that Quid is taking is the Erie Highway. It is the only paved road linking Western Australia to Southern Australia, running from the town of Nordsman in Western Australia for over 750 miles across the plains to the Southern Australian town of Sejuna, and that's before it bends south to the east, adding an additional 290 miles just onto that stretch of paved road. For the purposes of this story, Keech's character has to drive all the way from Adelaide to Perth across the Nullarbor Plain, and it's a journey of roughly 1,600 miles. When Franklin and DeRoche were working out the beats for this script, they both had agreed they wanted to make a Hitchcock-esque story, a rear window that takes place in the trucking world, both of them picturing Sean Connery as their lead, until they actually realized how much that would cost to get Sean Connery to be a part of their picture. And that's not something they had budgeted for. So Stacy Keach was then suggested as a replacement from Avco Embassy Pictures who were financing it, and Franklin latched onto that notion very quickly, appreciating Keach's previous work. Now, Stacy Keach himself is a fan fantastic actor and deserves to have his own background done by us one of these days, you know, just do a deep dive into some films he's done. He was really excited to go shoot in Australia and work with Richard Franklin. He had really enjoyed the opportunity to play the character of Pat Quid. He loved the notion that you have this crazy American in exile working in Australia and thought the relationship that Quid had with this dog that he travels with just incredible. Keach actually learned how to properly drive a big rig for the role, noting that it was already a challenge just because you're learning how to drive a truck, but it's 16 gears with left-handed shifting in a right-handed side cab, driving on the left-hand side of the road, all of which was new to him. And he found the experience to be both fun and exciting, and really noted the feeling of power that the truck of that size gave him especially when he was out in the middle of nowhere. For the role of Hitch, Australian actress Lisa Pierce was first cast for the film, but the financiers didn't think she was a big enough star and or draw, and thus rejected her involvement. Again, let me rephrase that. The financiers rejected the Australian actress. Jamie Lee Curtis's name was floated as she was deemed as an acceptable replacement for a wider international audience. Now, Curtis herself was in the middle of her post-Halloween success, which had set her up for a run of being in teenage slasher films and, of course, steady paychecks. It was during the very middle of this run when the phone call came to her representation, asking her if she wanted to work with director Richard Franklin and Stacy Keach down in Australia, and she was sold. Franklin had already previously met Curtis through his relationship with John Carpenter when he had visited his friend on the set of The Fog, and he thought she would be a great addition to this film. In hindsight, 
it was a step up for her career into legitimacy, I'm using air quotes, for at least her acting, because it was not another slasher film. And she looked at it as a great opportunity. The irony of all this, looking back on it, after all of the horror fare that she had done, and in spite of loving her time in the country at least, and having this shoot, Curtis described the film as not being her cup of tea. She did get a lot of flack, not from the cast or crew, but from the Australian film scene in general, and the general public, because they accused her of taking a role away from an Australian actress, something that she felt very badly about and did not intend to do. And there were also some unfortunate murmurs that this was a nepotism situation due to a mix-up. See, one of the producers of the film was a man named Bernard Schwartz. Uh, and there was no relation there. You see, Bernard Schwartz is the original name of Jamie Lee Curtis's father, Tony Curtis, before he took his stage name. Still, that sort of misunderstanding and mix-up did leave Curtis feeling not as welcome as she would, you know, have hoped to expect in being on a shoot in another country. Grant Page was brought on. He was a stuntman and was the stunt coordinator for this film as well, and he plays the menacing killer here. Kind of always shot out of focus, we get a lot of him just from a far distance, or we see his eyes in the mirror with his face somewhat obscured. It's only at the end we truly get to see him, which makes him sort of more frightening as to just how normal he appears to be. Ironically, if you want to shoot a film about being out on a desolate highway, you have to go out on a desolate highway. And that's exactly what they did. They described it as frontier filmmaking. The cast and the crew ended up staying at small motel gas stations on location in the, quote, middle of nowhere, spending their days driving along empty stretches of outback highway. They had uncharacteristic rain multiple times during early production, which got things off to a rough start. Facilities were not the greatest, as cast and crew frequently had to take saltwater showers. During production, Keach recounts that they had a plague of green caterpillars, covering large sections of the highway like a rolling green carpet. He claimed it looked incredible, but it was particularly hazardous to drive over, causing vehicles to skid. Keach also ended up frightening crew members by going off alone on a hike in the sand dunes on location. It was only after he returned that he was scolded never to do it again. They were filming on a location that was heavily populated by death adder snakes, and were Keach to have gotten bitten, they were very far away from any sort of medical help. Franklin also had a real hard time shooting, as the crew was partially composed of some British film union members, who would drag out their days with their requirements of tea breaks and would argue with him over the number of times they would work to get a shot done properly. This did not help that production was also running behind schedule and that the film was starting to go over budget. Now, director Franklin got Australian composer Brian May, who was fresh off of scoring the sequel to Mad Max The Road Warrior. May had worked with both DeRoche and Franklin before, scoring 78's Patrick and 1980's Harlequin, respectively. And his work here is indeed excellent, although I have to say, 
It has these reoccurring motifs that, to me, are reminiscent of Holtz's Mars Bringer of War, but hey, maybe that's a little too band nerdy for me to get into here. All that being said, geez, you've been really patient in listening to me talk about this, so why don't we just get onto that trailer? to be hitchhiking out here all by yourself? Aren't you kind of old to be picking me up? And a killer is playing the deadliest game of all. Oh, he's just killed a girl. Did he make love to her first? I don't know. What's the difference? It makes a lot of difference. I think in order to play the game properly, we have to know what he thinks of women. Stacy Keach is an American expat working as a long-haul trucker in Australia. Although he doesn't consider himself to be a truck driver, that's just his job. He's a colorful character, a man who's clearly comfortable in his own skin, spending long stretches of time out in the open road with his imagination and his trusty dingo companion Boswell, also known as Boz, to keep him company. He passes the time in his cab, playing his harmonica, and coming up with inventive backstories for drivers that he passes, entertaining himself with trivia. Bone-tired and coming off of a long shift, he pulls into a motel to get a room for the night, but is quickly frustrated to find that a driver in a green van, one who had earlier blown past him on the highway, but not before picking up a beautiful lady hitchhiker, has taken the last room available. Disappointed, Quid and his dingo end up spending the night in their truck cab together. We then get to observe the still-unseen van driver up in his motel room, putting on a pair of driving gloves and using a guitar string to strangle that young hitchhiker. In the morning before leaving the hotel, Quid notices that the dingo is sniffing at some garbage outside of the motel very curiously. 
What's more, the driver of the green van, at least by way of the curtains, seems to be very interested in exactly what the dog is doing. Quid writes this all off as just, eh, weird, and goes about his morning, which includes picking up his next haul, a refrigerated shipment of pigs from Universal Meats that needs to get from Adelaide to Perth. It's going to be a long trip, but Quid is in it for the money, so he strikes out with Dingo to cross the Nullabore. Along the way, he entertains himself, mocking some of the people he passes on the road, giving them interesting backstories and postulating on what their conversations are. This includes an arrogant man hauling a sailboat, a regular family that seems to have a domineering wife and or mother nagging them as they drive, he dubs her Frida Frugal, and a station wagon that passes him that is packed to the ceiling with assorted balls. With full, devout courage of sundry folk by adventure fall in fellowship, and pilgrims were they all. Good morning, pilgrims. Morning. Methinketh it accordant to resound to tell you all Hello. Been away on holiday, eh? Lovely. To Warrnambool. Fred Frugal and his wife, Frida. Frida Frugal. But she's a real dragon. You should have thrown right at the last letter, and I told you, but you never listened. Poor guy. I bet he's gonna come. Maybe a school teacher. Uh, an accountant. You better watch it, kids. Now, careful, you stay in that position for life. Now, there's a man with balls. Benny Balls. As he makes his way west, he also begins to see the same young hitchhiker, thumbing for rides and apparently getting picked up along the way, only to keep having her show up again a few hours later, slightly ahead of him, working her way west as well. He also notices the green van that he saw earlier from the motel seems to be following him, and remarks that he wonders if the driver has that same fox still with him. Eventually, the van ends up passing, and Quid sees the driver is now alone, save for a cooler in the front seat. As he journeys on, the nagging wife, who eventually gives her name to us as Madeline, as played by Marion Edward, is at the side of the road and ends up blocking Quid's progress with rolls of toilet paper. Her husband went on without her when they were at the last rest stop, and she needs him to take her to the nearest filling station. Quid tries to explain that it's really against company policy to take hitchhikers, but she isn't having it. She is not hitchhiking. She is stranded. So Quid reluctantly agrees to take her along, and she mentions to him that there's a terrible murderer on the loose, but Quid doesn't know anything about it. As they drive, they play a game together to pass the time. Hey, it's my turn. Okay. Um, animal. Let's fly there. Now look, if you're not going to play the game properly, I don't want to play at all. Well, is it the fly? Yes, it is the fly, but the, you're taking all the fun out of it. You've got to ask the questions, you've got to narrow it down more logically. Okay, this time I've got a real good one. 
No, I've had enough. Oh, come on. It's really easy. And it's not even animal product. It's just plain, ordinary animal. Okay, but no tricks. I'll give you a clue. It's bigger than a bread box. Me? No. Boswell? No. Well, it's got to be you. Wrong. Lady, if there is an animal bigger than a bread box inside this truck, you better tell me about it. I never said it was inside the truck. The pigs? No. Kangaroo? No. An emu? No. Well... The Dullabore Nymph. Lawrence of a friggin' Arabia. I don't know, this is crazy. You give up? Yeah, I guess so. Was that man back there? I didn't see any man back there. Of course you didn't. You were too busy arguing. But there was a man back there standing beside a dark green van and he was digging a hole. Quid quickly pulls over and grabs a pair of binoculars. Thinking out loud beyond the game verbalizing how such a thing would have happened, starting to wonder if he may have seen the killer, the man with the green van. Madeline is getting completely nervous about this whole business and starts to think Quid is crazy, insisting that they drive on, being openly fearful of him. The man in the distance can be seen burying trash bags and some sort of cooler. From a distance, he can see that Quid is watching him, and he quickly flees the scene. Madeline gets freaked out by all of Quid's talk and what he's been saying about the possibility of them actually witnessing a killer and not wanting any further trouble. They eventually do stop at a gas station, and Quid tries to call the authorities, just, if nothing else, to call in a hunch to look for a guy in a green van and ask him some questions. He really can't get through, though, as the line is bad and the locals are not being friendly to him. And it becomes very apparent that someone has struck old Boz in the head. Quid ends up leaving in disgust, only to see the green van taking off now. He, the green van driver, is the one who had assaulted Boz. Quid gives chase, but ends up being blocked in his efforts by that same gentleman again towing his sailboat. The man refuses to let Quid pass, and the two have a very intense exchange that ends with the boat being completely destroyed. Quid gets away from the entire scenario unscathed, but loses the van in the process. As he continues west, he passes that same young woman again, as played by Jamie Lee Curtis, hitchhiking, and this time he actually stops, rationalizing that this is the third time he's passed her and he's starting to worry about her safety. He picks her up, dubbing her Hitch, they postulate together on the nature of the man in the green van, comparing him to possibly the Boston Strangler, and they turn this into a game of sorts. Hitch, does your 67-year-old father know you accept rides from truck drivers? My name isn't Hitch. Does your mother know you're gone? She's dead. My father loses the war. So you ran away? No, I walked away. Well, Hitch, don't you think it might be a good idea to call him and let him know that you're all right? Oh, maybe that's how he gets his rocks off. Your father? No, you're Mr. Smith or Jones. You know, the Boston Strangler was on a sex trip. God, maybe make love to him afterwards. Oh, come on. Well, why do you think he does it? I don't know. I mean, I really don't know that he does. I must get carried away about this. Are you kidding? It's the most fun I've had all afternoon. Okay. I've got a game. Good. Scrabble. No. Let's call it the Smith or Jones game. 
Sounds interesting. All right, now, let's assume that there is a method to his madness, that everything he does is for a logical purpose, right? Okay. Okay, now he's just killed a girl. Did he make love to her first? I don't know. What's the difference? It makes a lot of difference. I think in order to play the game properly, we have to know what he thinks of women. It's my game. Okay, Sherlock. It's the method we're interested in. Now, he just killed this girl. Now, how does he destroy the evidence? Cuts it up. Yeah, but why? Um... So the pieces won't be found. Yeah, but pieces don't prove anything. I mean, you can put an arm or a leg out with the garbage and it proves nothing, right? It's ridiculous. Yeah, but it's the law. I mean, you can lose an arm or a leg without necessarily being dead, right? Yeah, but... But if it... you lose your torso, you are definitely dead. But... If you lose your torso, I think you've had it. But one torso is pretty much like another that... Oh, foul. You lose a turn. I don't think it's so important what he does. It's... Why? I mean, what does he think of women? You're kidding. No. I mean, wouldn't you like to know what he's thinking? You know, get inside his head? <laughs> I'd like to get inside his friggin' lunchbox. I'll tell you what he thinks of women. He despises them. He thinks they're pigs. But why? You know what I think? Mm. I think you have much more fun sitting up here with your stereo and your air conditioning and your dingo. I don't think you want to know. You always done this? No, I've not always done this. When I was your age, I was first mate on a gunboat in the Persian Gulf. John Bloody Wayne. By the time I was 30, I was transporting guns across the Sudan border by camel. Mm, by camel. Now you're pushing piggies to Perth. Hitch, don't you think you'll let somebody know you're all right? Yeah, why? Your father might have the cops out looking for you. Yeah, he wouldn't do that. Oh, yeah? Quid and Hitch get pulled over by the police. And while Hitch hides in the back of the cab, Quid has to get out and answer a bunch of questions, such as if he's in the habit of often picking up hitchhikers. Noting that the manager of the motel where he tried to stay at the night before has sworn to the police that a man named Pat Quid had checked into a room with a young lady. And to his horror, Quid realizes that the killer used his name the name that is emblazoned on the side of his truck door, to check into the motel. The cops eye him suspiciously, wanting to see his logbook and thinking he is now a person of interest. The sergeant also notes that Quid is overdue for a stop, aggressively hinting it would be against the law if he doesn't, which forces Quid to pull over and make camp for the night. Quid and Hitch end up sitting by the fire, where she tells him that her real name is actually Pamela, and she is the daughter of an American diplomat. Hitchhiking across the continent, that's just her way of looking for adventure and excitement. When Pamela gets up to go answer the call of nature, she can see a van in the distance and a man in it, holding a guitar, watching them. The next day, they stop at a gas station, and Pamela spots the green van yet again. Quid goes into the men's room at the station, thinking he'll be able to corner the driver, and Pamela checks the van out itself, looking through the front of the driver's cab for clues. Since she doesn't encounter anyone, she gives Quid the thumbs-up signal. This leads Quid to believe that he actually has the killer 
in the bathroom with him and starts yelling at a man in the stall, accusing him of picking up young girls and assaulting his dog. While Quid is reading the supposed killer the riot act, Pamela is shown to be startled by the van driver lying in the back of the van on the dark floor the entire time there in a sleeping bag. By the time Quid realizes the man who he is addressing in the restroom is not the killer, both Pamela and the green van are gone. Quid ends up fleeing the stop, trying to find the van. He does eventually find the van on the road, but from the back, it seems Pamela is just sitting up in the front of the cab, fine and well, conversing with the driver, and so Quid feels rather helpless to stop all of it. But he can't find anything wrong with the situation, and chalks all of this up to just Pamela being more trouble than she's worth. That's fine. Slow down. Maybe he's out of gas. Maybe this is some new kind of game. to me is she to you buddy what the hell is she doing psychoanalyzing him hey you don't think she'd be stupid enough to try and blackmail him do you oh i don't know bozzy maybe we've been barking up the wrong tree we picked her up she is trouble i knew we shouldn't have done it i hope she steals at least she didn't get my wallet oh she's all yours mr smith or friggin jones whatever your game is i mean let's face it what have we got running anyway buzz huh what do we know about it i'll tell you what we know about him we know absolutely zilch nada I mean, is it against the law to dig a friggin' hole in the desert? Is it a crime to have a lunchbox and thump dingoes? Or put out rubbish bags at five o'clock in the morning? I mean, what does that prove? So what if he is a murderer and he's going around systematically butchering every female in sight and making them into tacos? Who gives a shit? If the cops don't care about it, I'll tell you I don't. I mean, why is it my responsibility to take care of road waves? We are truckers, Boswell, and from now on we're going to truck. And I don't want to hear another word about it. As Quid drives on through the night, he hears a news report on the radio that an American diplomat is desperately looking for his missing daughter, one who was recently seen with a trucker in his early 40s, a man who looks like Quid and is wanted for questioning, which starts to break down our hero's fragile psyche. Maniac. He cuts him up like a Sunday roast and the cops are out looking for me. They got nothing on me. Nothing. I'm not worried. I can prove it. Uh, autopsy. Handwriting expert. Dispatcher. I was on the road that night. Hitch. Oh, what was her name? 
Pamela. I think it was Pamela. He says, I hope you didn't see her in the dog box. I said, no. Cops couldn't have seen her. What am I going to do with this truck? Quid is exhausted and he begins to hallucinate while driving on the road at night, imagining that he sees a giant kangaroo in the darkness leering out at him. And he begins to imagine what if the killer, possibly, had gotten into his refrigerated truck and was storing the bodies of the women he killed in the back with the rest of the pig carcasses. Quid ends up seeing the green van parked by the side of the road, and he pulls over to investigate it for himself. He finds the van empty, but he can hear giggling from a distance in the weeds, and he assumes it is Pamela um, hitting it off with the van driver. Angry and tired, Quid returns to the cab of his truck and drives on through the night to Perth, ranting at Boswell about the fickle nature of women. Quid ends up arriving at a way station on the outskirts of Perth, where he again sees the green van. It's almost as if the driver has been following him, taunting him, is baiting him to follow. It too pulls over and seemingly waits for Quid's truck to get weighed. The van gasses up and again takes off, and Quid dutifully follows after it. But now, police have been starting to follow Quid at a distance. Going into the city, a three-way chase begins as the van driver tries to lose Quid through a series of ever-increasing tight turns and eventually tries to ditch the truck in a narrow alleyway. The man exits the van menacingly, brandishing a shovel at Quid, but seems rather amused when Quid tries to get out of the truck cab and can't even open his doors as the alley is just too narrow. The man begins to break the lights on the front of the truck and smashing the front grill repeatedly with the shovel, but he drops it just as quickly when Quid pulls the truck's air horn. Quid is now very angry and fires his truck back up and rolls forward, sending the man running back to his own van. Quid builds up speed and is able to disconnect the truck from the trailer, and using crates and dumpster bins in the alley as sort of a crude ramp, he brings the truck cab down completely on top of the van, locking both vehicles together so that the killer cannot escape. Quid exits the cab and gets into a knockdown fight with the killer, and during the exchange he eventually gets the upper hand and himself begins to start to strangle the killer with a necklace. That is until the police show up. A crowd forms around them, and Quid is pulled off the man and dragged off to be arrested, in spite of his pleas to please look in the van and stop him, don't let him escape. To his horror, a bunch of the fellow travelers that are gathering around are all there. Frida, the yuppie with the sailboat, and all of them are shouting about how Quid is the man they were telling the police about. As it looks like the killer is about to get away by melting into the crowd, Boswell jumps from the cab on top of a dumpster and begins to bark incessantly at the van, much to Quid's astonishment, as he had always assumed that dingoes can't bark. The police head over to the van and find a very much alive Pamela, bound and gagged in a fully zipped-up sleeping bag. She and Quid have an amusing argument over where the other one was, while the police actually stop the killer and cuff him. 
With all of this craziness now behind them, Quid salvages the few personal items he can from the cab of his truck and hits the road with Pamela and Boswell, the three of them beginning to hitchhike their way north, with Quid commenting that he can't believe there was so much damage. It's just that when you pay $100 for a dingo, you expect to get a dingo. Jesus. $100,000 worth of damage. I just can't believe you actually thought I slept with the guy. Well, where were you then? I told you, I don't know. I had a sleeping bag over my head. Well, I Thank Christ they were able to salvage the meat. Now what? I don't know. Think about heading up north, see if I can get a job up there. You know, something I forgot. Forgot to tell the police. That body that they never found? I thought it was you hanging in the back of the truck. But, uh... <laughs> Pamela takes a long, hard look at the sandwich she's eating and gets a very disquieting look on her face. We then cut to a cleaning woman at Universal Meats, entering what used to be the back of Quid's trailer, starting to scrub the container down as the last of the pig carcasses get removed. While she begins scrubbing, she notices a long, fine wire, like a guitar string, hanging from the ceiling, brushing against the side of her head. She pulls it and screams as a victim's head falls with it, landing in her cleaning bucket staring up at the camera. Where do we even begin? Well, rightfully so, director Franklin was particularly proud of the boat scene, and he actually got some assistance in setting it up from director George Miller. He went and just basically said, hey, you worked with action, how do you properly frame this? And Miller, being the consummate professional, offered up this advice. Just go back, watch Ben-Hur, look at the chariot race shots, and you will then match it. And that's all you need to do. And Franklin did just that. And that's where we get such a classic scene of Quid fighting for road dominance with a guy hauling a sailboat that ultimately leads to destruction of the towed vessel. He should absolutely be pleased with this film. It drips suspense and Hitchcock's sensibility. The violence is almost always obscured. Shots are meant just to keep the tension going. You have a hero that is, you know, beginning to doubt what he sees, questioning his own sanity, chalking it all up to his own fatigue from driving for hours on end. Franklin did have issues, though, with how this film ended. The film was completed. The killer was caught. Quid and Hitch are off, either to have more adventures or to part ways. But regardless, the story was finished. Avco Embassy Pictures stepped in and demanded a, quote, shock ending. So Franklin was forced to tack on that whole bumper ending to the picture. So we did get to see the scene of Quid's truck being unloaded and a woman coming to clean it. And while the workers are offloading the pig carcasses, she encounters the head of a victim. Scream, freeze frame, end. It's a good shock ending. It is a good scare, and I totally understand why Franklin hated including it. It seems out of sync with the rest of this picture. 
having it leave on Jamie Lee Curtis's face when she looks at her own sandwich and questions if they actually did have meat that was human bodies, that is where the real troubling ending comes from. And Franklin hints at multiple points that the meat in the truck with the pigs could possibly be human. And when it's done from that perspective, again, think Hitchcock, the viewer's never really sure what they can trust in what they're seeing. It elevates the tension. It gives the film more of a thrill. And by then adding and tacking on this very 80s, very slasher film jump scare at the end, all it does is change the tone of what we've just been through with our heroes. It's great, but it's not really fitting with what this film is. I love how Stacy Keach plays Quid. He's quirky, but it's all done for reason. It's not just like, you know, he's not some... 80s version of like manic pixie trucker he has a logic and a method to his own madness you have a guy that's on his own isolated in a cab with a dog for hours upon hours everything he does while it may seem to be a bit off the wall is done with the subtlety of a man who is trying to hang on to his sanity by coming up with elaborate routines and games his explanation of his love of his dog to frida as he quips that you know Hey, just because I drive a truck doesn't make me a driver. All of this repeatedly encapsulates the right feel. Quid, simply, as I would see it, is the man. You're a dog, doesn't bite, does it? No, he's not a dog. <laughs> it looks like a dog. It's a dingo. Dingo? Yeah. Well, what would anybody want to keep a dingo for? Well, I like him. He doesn't eat too much. He's quiet. A dingo's a kind of dog, so what's the difference? The dog is a parasite hybrid. I mean, he chases cars, he barks at shadows, and he eats his own feces. But a dingo? Dingo's clean. He's intelligent. He's quiet. In fact, he's physically incapable of barking. That's why they call him the silent dog. He's an aristocrat. Like me. Were all truck drivers as stuck up as you? Madam, just because I drive a truck does not make me a truck driver. You and your tundra wolf sitting up in your ivory tower. I bet you're not even married, are you? No. I feel this concept really shines through when Quid is arguing with himself over what he thinks has actually just happened, what he's seen. You know people absolutely do just that when they're alone driving a car. They'll talk to themselves. I also find it very amusing that Keech's take on Quid, that he's always snacking on vegetables, he's always eating carrots or celery, and he's giving all the meat and the snacks to the dog. In my humble opinion, Franklin, with his direction, has nailed this. He wanted to make a thriller, a truly Hitchcockian thriller. So he's got a smart story with good dialogue, great misdirection, and you have a film that is essentially bloodless. All the violence is off camera and is only implied as being grisly through the way they talk about it. Were it not for the very fake head at the end, this would have been a slam dunk. And still, 
it is a perfect little film. It's a great thing to recommend to people who are squeamish about real horror, but want something that is going to be good and get them excited and hold their attention. And besides, even with that last statement, this film is only rated PG. Alright, let's get to it. How was this film received? <clears throat> Not well. The film was budgeted for $1.8 million, which for an Australian production was some very decent money. When it was released in Australia, it had ended up only grossing about $100,000. The initial release and reviews were solely focused on the American leads, the outrage of complaining that Yankees, particularly Jamie Lee Curtis, was taking away Australian work. Those reviews that did not mention that part of it basically described the film as being a slow mover. Now, there were some decent reviews, I won't go out of my way to tell you nobody liked it, but at the end of the day, outrage replaced any sort of actual feelings of what the film was. Avco Embassy marketed this film internationally as a slasher horror film, trying to play up Jamie Lee Curtis's involvement and her stature as a scream queen to get people to come in the door and see it. But the problem is, it's not really a horror picture. So folks that would have been, you know, turning out in droves for a slasher film, they all stayed home. Reviews stateside fared better, but again, not great, and people didn't come to see it. The word was apparently out. This is not a hit, and it was just simply relegated to being a box office bomb. Now, here's the thing. 15 years later, by the time you get to the mid-90s, retrospectives start to pop up. In a 1995 issue of Australian Film, writer Peter Lawrence did a deep dive on the content of the story and just touted the brilliance of the Hitchcockian methodology that Franklin used to tell and craft the story about a man who refused to be categorized and while traveling the road was placed in very real danger that forces him to act. If you look at Rotten Tomatoes today, Road Games still has no critical consensus, not even enough to get a rating, which is rather telling, not enough people have seen it. Currently it has a little over 1900 with the audience ratings and averages about 62%, which isn't bad when it comes to using Rotten Tomatoes metrics. The result is still clear, more people need to see this film, it is a lost gem. The version of Road Games screened here at the LSCE was the 2016 Umbrella Entertainment Blu-ray release, and quite frankly, it's gorgeous. A complete 4K master of the film, it came loaded with extras, director commentary from Richard Franklin, a making of featurette, 2007 interviews of Keech, Curtis, Franklin, DeRoche, cinematographer Vincent Montan, and Tom Dernstall, all from the not-quite-Hollywood interviews themselves. It included a 1980 lecture that Franklin gave on the film with producer Barbie Taylor and composer Brian May in attendance. 
It came with a 1981 interview with Franklin, as well as a 2001 separate interview with Keach, audio interviews from actor stuntman Grant Page, a fully restored featurette with Vincent Montan, with production gallery stills, Fangoria essays by author Lee Gamblin, plus storyboards, film reviews, and promotional artwork. All of that can be yours if you go on Amazon and pay the low price of $18, which I would argue for everything you get with this picture is a steal. Now, for those of you who say, I don't want to buy an all-region Australian version, you're silly by the way, and still, hey, whatever, whatever floats your boat, you wish to only buy American, I'll have to say November 2019. Scream Factory, good old Scream Factory, put out their own Blu-ray special edition of the film, which has now dropped in price and becomes yours for $23.99. Now, Scream Factory loses some of the original commentary. Um, you don't get the same audio from cinematographer Montan, but it retains all of the other featurettes and goodies that are located on the Aussie disc and adds in a few different featurettes and commentaries. Um, new ones from production coordinator Helen Watts, costume designer Aphrodite Kondos has a full section on how they determined to make Jamie Lee Curtis look well, and a new commentary track that includes Montan, moderated by Mark Hartley, uh, and it's all full of fond remembrances for the late director Franklin. Plus, there's an additional new interview with Stacy Keach recalling his time on the shoot and recounting stories. So for all of you completionists out there, this could be right up your alley. So if you wanted to buy both copies, do so. And now remember folks, we don't get paid here anything at the LSCE to tell you and go out and make purchases. We just feel it's important to continue to support physical media so that these fine companies who own the rights to these amazing prints will continue to release the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that what really matters? Besides, this movie really is amazing and more people should be out there seeing it. So on that note, what are you waiting for? Go get a copy of Road Games today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you for joining us. We do hope you've enjoyed our month-long look at some fine exploitation movies. Next month, May is going to see us visit a favorite genre of mine, post-apocalyptic fiction. Something we here are going to call a cozy catastrophe. If you please, we would love to have you join us then. Okay. I know I've already spent the last couple times tucking at your coat sleeve at the end of each show, but again, during these crazy days of the COVID virus, we do still have an opportunity to tell you all that there's a fairly painless way you can reach out and help your fellow men. You've heard me say in the past that this podcast is located on Podchaser. That's a podcast database for listeners and creators alike. Well, the good folks at Podchaser have now decided that they've raised so much money, they've gotten new support from both Libsyn and Captivate. So between the three platforms, they're going to extend their Reviews for Good campaign. So wonderful news. From now through April 30th, 
Podchaser is continuing to pledge that every podcast review or episode review that gets left on their site, they're going to donate 25 cents to Meals on Wheels. So again, every review, 25 cents. For every reply then that a podcaster leaves to said reviews, they'll double that amount. Again, may not seem like much at first, but take into account, A, Podchaser has thousands of podcasts on its website, and B, if you just consider this alone, uh, I believe this will now be our 59th episode offering if you count in our bonus episodes. So in theory, you're looking at if everyone were to go on and let's say review each episode we've done and I were to leave a reply, you're looking at about $30 a person. You can review as many episodes as you like on Podchaser, which again, I will say is a free site to go to. So please, folks, if you could take the time, you don't even have to review my podcast, you can review any podcast you like. You will only be incidentally helping me and others, and in reality, you will absolutely be helping feed people who are in need. So what about that is not to love? In the meantime, you can follow us at our new website, lscep.com. Please subscribe there and get updates. You can find links to the podcast platforms of your choice. Follow us. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, feel free, email us at lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. If you'd like to have an even more personal interaction or wish to contribute to a segment in the sidecar, please feel free. Send us an audio message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So until next time, take care out there. Please stay healthy. Wash your hands. Keep social distancing. And remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. Thank you.